Welcome to the Independent Advisors Podcast, where we dive into the world of stocks, tradable markets, and financial planning with Jessup Wealth Management's Chief Investment Officer, Mark McEvely, and CEO, Matt Jessup. You'll hear tips, tricks, and strategies to address your financial well-being, and most importantly, conveyed in a way that everyone can understand. Here are your hosts, Mark and Matt. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to episode number 140 of the Independent Advisors Podcast, where Matt Jessup and I, Mark McEvely, bring you everything you need to know from the past week in the world of financial markets and financial planning. So good morning, Matt. Morning, Mark. How are you? Good. On the brink of warmer weather here, daylight savings just around the corner. It's starting to get earlier or to get sunnier in the mornings here and lighter in the morning. So uh, it's teasing us last week when we had 75 degree weather here in Dayton on Saturday and then 70s again on on Sunday. Oh, I want it. Then we had snow yesterday morning and then... 50 and sunny in the afternoon so welcome to ohio yeah welcome to ohio so (laughs) uh, i'm sure everyone is excited for the warmer weather uh like we are Uh, before we begin as always just want to take the first few minutes to recap the performance for the month and the year of the major indexes that we track and these numbers are as of the market close on march 9th and the data is from coifin S&P 500 index down 2.2% for March and down 10.25% for the year. The Dow down 1.8% for the month and down 8.4% for the year. The NASDAQ composite index down 5.45% for the month and down 18.2% for the year. The IWM ETF that tracks the Russell 2000 index down 1.5% for the month and down 9.9% for the year. So that's kind of an interesting development that we saw the uh, small cap index, Matt, outperform their larger cap peers uh, in February, and that's continuing so far into March, which is important for me because typically you know, when stocks are in an uptrend and you start to see small caps, mid caps and micro cap stocks, so smaller companies begin to underperform the larger indexes, um, that's typically a risk off signal, just one, right? Because typically those stocks are more volatile, they carry more risk with them. So when those are underperforming relative to larger names, that's a sign of a risk off environment that we need to pay attention to. And I think it works the other way too. It's like these smaller cap, more risk on names are outperforming now and markets have been falling. So not saying, not calling a bottom, but it's just an interesting thing to note, I think. Absolutely. And what came to mind as you were speaking is you know, the drastic underperformance of smalls in January, mm-hmm. right? So to kind of see that stabilize in February, continue to outperform in March is definitely an encouraging sign. Right, right. Uh, Vanguard International ETF, X United States, down 3.9% on the month and down 9.3% on the year. Three-month T-bill yielding 0.38%, the two-year Treasury yielding 1.68%, and the 10-year Treasury yield sitting at 1.95%. More big news and headlines from this past week than normal, Matt. The first thing I wanted to talk about was the U.S. added 678,000 jobs in February, and the jobless rate fell to 3.8%. So it's good to see that um, jobs are starting to get filled. I think we still have a ways to go, but 
I mean, yeah, given all the headlines we've had recently, no one really talked about that, right? Have they? Right. Uh, the Federal Reserve Chair uh, Jerome Powell hinted at just a 25 basis point rise in interest rates at the next Fed meeting on March 16th to Congress this past week. And for those who's uh, not familiar with the basis point lingo in our industry, 25 basis points just means 0.25%. Yeah, one-fourth of 1%. Yeah, and it was baked in, you know, before, you know, Russia invaded Ukraine, it was baked in that it was going to be a half a point, uh, half, half, 0.5% raise in interest rates. So, correct. Um, you know, the Fed adjusting based on what is going on around the world. How many ways can we say it? 50 bips? Half a bits, point, half a point, half a percent, point five percent. Yeah. My gosh. I never got that. It took me a while to understand the basis point thing. And I'm like, I hate when people quote it like that. So for those who don't know, it's just point two five percent. There you go. Um, the focus in the markets uh, continue to be on geopolitical risk, Matt. Um, you know, obviously, bef- besides the horrible humanitarian news and devastating news we keep seeing coming out of Ukraine, um, the market is trying to price in worst case scenarios, I think, for the end game and this conflict going on and the ultimate effects on the global economic recovery. Yeah, I mean, I think the bottom line is the market's trying to assess how long we're going to have elevated commodity prices, specifically energy, things like nat gas and oil. And in, if that stays for an extended period of time, is that going to affect the global economic recovery post COVID? And one thing I personally stand by, I don't read this anywhere, this is my own opinion. You know, China's the only country that has any influence over Russia. And ultimately, their economy cannot afford extended oil prices above $100 because of their exports. Right. So, I mean, at the end of the day, I think you're going to see more pressure as time goes on from China. And ultimately, you know, any oil that is sanctioned will just get bought by China. I mean doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure that out right and i just i really question the market's feeling about these supply disruptions on a longer term basis if the sanctions stay for quarters and quarters and years and years you're just going to have china buy it from russia and china won't buy it from other places right yeah interesting um also just last night matt uh amazon announced a 20 for one stock split following google's uh footsteps uh earlier when they were had their earnings report and they also announced a share repurchase program of 10 billion dollars so uh an amazon spokeswoman said that the split will make the uh split adjusted share price more accessible for potential investors and will allow employees more flexibility in how they manage their stock-based compensation um so amazon shareholders of record as of may 27th this year will have 19 additional shares for every one share they hold uh, in June. So Amazon's targeting June 6th for their first day trading after their stock split. That's big news. I mean, it's a large cap name. It's definitely going to change the psychology of where things are at. I think they're being opportunistic with kind of where their stock price is at, given the sell-off recently in just the whole market in general. I think it's, I think it's a good move. Yeah, so... Um, not advocating for or against Amazon, but this will be their uh, first split since 1999. Interesting. Holy cow. Yeah, long time. Um, and then just a kind of a 
thing that came up for me personally, Matt, on the housing market, uh, I got a text from a random number <laughs> earlier this week, and they said, hey, are you willing to sell? And they listed my old address. And I just responded. How in the heck did they get your cell phone number? I don't know. I don't know. Um, and, and I said, I just responded and said, I don't live there anymore. <laughs> and if that wasn't enough, they were like, well, are you willing to sell your house that you're currently in oh right now? Oh, my gosh. So it's just like, you know, when does this end, right? I don't think the end is anywhere in sight right now for this stuff. It's just kind of nuts. You look at now the tailwind of inflation, hitting these ass, hitting these real estate prices you have the replacement cost i.e the cost to build still elevated um lack of new home building is really continuing to uh, hurt supply i mean it i don't i don't see it ending anytime soon right yeah it's just it's it's nuts every time we think that it keeps getting crazier and crazier it gets topped. <laughs> What's next? A little knock on the door? You yeah. Want, you want to yeah. And I mean, and she even said she was like, I'm a cash buyer. And I was like, we just moved in a couple months ago. So I think we're pretty content right yeah, now. Not going to happen. Um, but yeah. And my brother is looking for a house right now. They had to throw in, you know, a full year of Columbus Zoo passes to try to incentivize the C- sellers. Come again? Yeah. Because they're zoo fans. So, you know, their, their realtor recommended that they throw that in there. It's like, pretty nuts right now hold on a second we're getting to the point now where we're 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 sweetening the pot mm-hmm. beyond cash beyond cash yeah it's okay. nuts all right okay nuts all right Jenny, um, you taking this in so i thought that was that wow. was interesting so um moving Ooh. on to tweets articles and research from the week i had a tweet from ryan dietrich on february 28th um and jenna will post this uh chart up on uh YouTube video here for people that are watching. Um, He said that the big stock gains tend to happen late in a midterm year, but be aware that March tends to see strength. And in midterm election years, other than October, November, and December, March is the fourth strongest month uh, of a midterm election year. So this is an interesting data set. From a seasonality standpoint, based on history, not saying that the markets have to be positive in March, but there's evidence to show that it's more likely than not. Very interesting data set. So, um, and the weakest is June. The weakest is June. Yeah, which is which is interesting. So, we'll see if that plays out this year. Yeah. Um, next was a blog post from Michael Batnick titled "It's Ugly Out There" on February twenty fourth. Um, so. Uh, let me get my, I got a lot of documents open. Sorry. Um, so, uh, Michael posted this again on February 24th. Um, and this is what he said. And he said, so stocks are falling. The major averages have officially entered correction territory. These types of declines shouldn't scare investors. And for the most part, they don't. Few people are worried about a correction. Most people are worried about a bear. Yep. 10, I can live with 20. I want to avoid. Historical numbers should be taken with a grain of salt, but I do think it can help set a baseline expectation. So I had Nick Majuli run the numbers for me. Since 1950, the S&P 500 has declined 10% from its highs 25 times. 12 times it fell more than 20%, basically a coin toss that a correction turns into a bear market. 
the indexes are still okay. I mean, a 12 to a 12% decline for the S&P 500 is pretty mild, especially after the run that we've had. Doesn't feel that way. Doesn't feel that way. I think the declines this time make a lot of sense. First of all, it's easy to lose sight of the fact that stocks have had an extraordinary run. Even with this fall, the S&P 500 has compounded at 16.7% over the last three years and 9.7% over the previous five years. Second of all, interest rates matter. The cost of capital is everything. For the most part, I think the selling here has been pretty reasonable. So what's an investor to do? I want to share some thoughts from three of my favorite investors. Number one is Ben Carlson, who is um, Michael's colleague. He says, when the markets go haywire, you really have three options on what to do with your portfolio. Do more, do less, or do nothing. Kelly Cox put it plainly. She said, you don't have to be an expert on geopolitics to invest, or the Fed, or the economy, or tech valuations, or commodities. You just need goals and a plan to reach those goals. Golf clap for that one. Yep. Finally, Charlie Munger said, if you're going to invest in stocks for the long term or real estate, of course, there are going to be periods when there's a lot of agony and other periods where there's a boom. And I think you just have to learn to live through them. It feels lousy to say this is healthy, given how many people are experiencing significant amounts of pain. But that's how I feel. 2020 and 2021 wasn't normal. Stocks going up every day is not healthy. Ringing out the excess is. It's never fun when stocks go down, but this is the contract that all investors sign. No downside, no upside. You just have to learn to live through it. That's the sacrifice. Yeah. That is the sacrifice. And, you know, for, you know, those listening, you know, my other two cents is really be thinking about how your perception is of the underlying businesses that you own. And despite the headlines that you're seeing, most likely a lot of the stocks that you own are doing just fine. Mm -hmm. Fundamentally. Right. And I was on a, um, a Zoom video uh, conference last night with one of our clients out of state. And the question came up is, hey, man, over the last couple of years, you know, the market is still up a lot. Is this, you know, justified by fundamentals? And I referenced in a previous podcast to this client that, yeah, I mean, you had a huge rise in underlying earnings for the S&P 500 that I highlighted about five or six podcasts ago. That really does underpin and justify this move you've seen the last couple of years. And at least for the time being, I'm not seeing that that stop. Companies are very profitable. Their balance sheets are great. I mean, Amazon did the stock buyback along with the uh, split. I think you're going to continue to see that. Yeah. So just, you know, keep that in mind. These, these, these headlines, and again, I'm, I'm not trying to minimize the humanitarian aspect of this. This will pass. Mm-hmm. And then what's left at the end of the day is the fundamentals. Right. And it was the same conversation we had when COVID rolled around, right? You know, Absolutely. we take a hard look at things and you look at, you know, uh, is there a systemic issue with the financial system? And we decided that there wasn't. And we're like, fundamentally, how are these companies that we own performing? And they were still good. And ultimately, we didn't feel the need to to blow out of everything. And it's kind of a similar situation now, I think. That's right. And so the next data check is going to be earnings season for Q1 at the end of April. It's right around the corner. Yeah. I mean, we are, we are less than seven, eight weeks from a lot of these major earnings reports. Wall Street knows that. And I think we're playing a game of chicken right now. Yeah. Yeah. Um, my last thing I had was again from Michael Batnick. It's a Michael Batnick type of week, I guess. Uh, t- a blog post titled, This is How Stocks Bottom. And there's a chart in this article that I'll have Jenna throw up uh, on the YouTube video as well for those watching. 
Uh, he said when the market opened yesterday, so he was referencing February 24th, S&P 500 index was down as much as 2.6%, leaving it 14.6% below the December highs. But then the selling stopped and the buying started. It picked up steam and it was full-blown panic by the end of the day. By the close, stock had, stocks had rallied 4.1% off the lows in one day. If you're looking for signs of a bottom, the good news is this is how they happen. The bad news is that this type of volatility is also what you see before th things get a lot worse. Mm -hmm. At every major market top over the last decade, we saw heavy buying off the lows, but we also saw this activity on the way down before a floor was reached. 2008 to 2009, 2011, and 2020 all experienced multiple failed rallies along the way. The type of few it's over, uh, no, it's not, is really demoralizing. So again, it's just something that could go really either way. Yeah, my, my observation is, especially over the last several trading days, I'm seeing the market decouple from every headline. And what I mean by that is, I think the market is, and again, I, I say this, not trying to minimize the humanitarian aspect of what's going on. I think the market is becoming desensitized to each headline that comes out right now. Yeah. And that to me is a sign of a short term bottom. Yeah. And, and I think just, you know, to play on the other side of it, people need to be prepared that if we get any sort of good news out of what's going on over there, it could be a violent move to the upside. It could um, be. Could yeah. Be. And, you know, in the kind of financial world, you know, there, there's a, I think there's a lot of people who are still speaking doom and gloom. I think there's about to be some carnage. Yeah. I think if this market rips to the upside, there's a there's people out there that are going to be losing a lot of money who are yeah. betting for continued weakness. Yep. All right. What do you got for me this week? So the first thing I have is a blog post by Brad McMillan. And we've had Brad on before. Um, he is uh, the chief investment officer for uh, Commonwealth uh, and very well known in our industry. His blog post is called The Independent Market Observer. And I would recommend... You know, people go to this site regularly. You can sign up and, and, and sign up for his newsletter regarding this. He had a piece about, it was titled, How to Think About the Ukraine Invasion. And instead of reading this exactly, I'm going to paraphrase, and this is from March 2nd. And he talks about, initially in this blog post, how do you really view the situation in Ukraine and Russia from a historical market perspective? And as he's kind of justifying and thinking about and, and, and communicating his thoughts, he boils it down to two models. The first model is a natural disaster model, and the second one is a pandemic model. And to kind of paraphrase, the natural disaster model is the initial event hits the market, which then we assess and respond to the damage and then start recovering. And ultimately, you know, that is a situation where you have a Hurricane Katrina comes through, wipes out a lot of the refining capacity, you know, you assess, okay, what's this damage? How long is it going to take to recover? The pandemic model is, you know, you initially have that, that news that hits the market and then secondary waves of uncertainty that last for months and quarters on end. And he goes to say, obviously time will tell, but most likely this is more of a natural disaster type model for the markets rather than a pandemic model itself. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, obviously time will tell, but I'm on the camp of the natural disaster because at the end of the day, I think that this is going to be a situation that um, 
the market gets passed because of the nature of what's going on. Because ultimately, energy prices, when you look at, at futures right now, they're showing that oil will most likely be in the 80s a year from now. That's what the contract is telling you. And so the market money right now is telling you that there's elevated energy prices that aren't going to stay. Could they stay high for six months, nine months? Absolutely. Longer? Yes. But I think just ultimately, this is going to have a shorter end than it feels like currently today. Mm -hmm. My two cents. Right, right. And then the, you know, the other aspect of it is like, okay, well, if it gets a lot worse and which is possible. other countries which get is possible. involved in the conflict which and is possible. which is possible, then and it turns the out the pandemic. Type. Yeah, you got right. it. You right. got it. Next piece I have is from a Bloomberg article I read on March 3rd. And the article is in um, is, is in regards to the U.S. dollar. And why this is getting so much importance is with these sanctions and countries like Russia not being able to utilize, you know, the U.S. dollar in the euro in transactions. This made me kind of think about how much of the dollar makes up global currency reserves. You ready for this? Mm -hmm. The chart will show 55% of the world's transactions are done in the American dollar. Get your arms around that. That's wow. huge. And right now, the euro side of it is sitting at about 20%. Mm -hmm. I mean, that is just mind boggling how important worldwide the American dollar is. Right. Yeah. It's interesting that back in 1999, it was like 70%, almost oh, yeah. 75% of transactions. Crazy. Wow. And then um, one thing I thought was really interesting is global transactions conducted in the, uh, the Chinese currency, the yuan, 3%. Says something. Take that in for a second. Yeah. All right. Next, I have an update on savings rates. So savings rates have collapsed, according to Liz on Saunders, to 6.4%. This is the lowest since 2013. So it appears to me, Mark, that workers' recent wage uh, increases in this new post-COVID environment are getting eaten up by the inflation that we've seen recently. Mm -hmm. And so I think it's d definitely an interesting development that you know, during the pandemic, we saw double-digit savings rates as people were unable to travel, unable to really spend money the way they used to. And now we're getting back down to these mid-single-digit savings rates. I found it very interesting. Yeah, and I'll, I'll lay out the bear case here because I think we catch a little bit of flack for not being bearish enough, so I'll satisfy those people right now. Go ahead. The bear case with this is... Okay, savings rates are coming back down uh, to lower than historical averages. And this combined with the Fed raising rates, some might say the Fed's behind the eight ball with this. And this should have happened a while ago when savings rates were high and that this could ultimately, while it could tame inflation, it's going to prevent people from spending, which will throw us into uh, economic recession because their saving rate aren't built up. Very possible. And if, uh, you know, if someone were in front of me making that argument, my reply would be, as employment continues to increase, the supply chains are going to get better. Capitalism will be more and more upfront if you're producing XYZ COG. And right now there's a limited supply and prices are $20 a cog. Mm -hmm. When supply increases and I got to sell these cogs, I'm going to drop my price to 18. Right. Okay. So <clears throat> that's where the puck is going, in my opinion. 
And that's going to play its way out over the next 12 to 18 months. And it might not affect, quote unquote, the savings rate, but I think it's going to start to really affect these prices. Yeah. And it's like, it, you know, you just have to be open to anything. I mean, look at commodities and oil. Oil went negative. If people forgot that a year, when was it? A year, 18 months ago, something About like two that. Years ago. Two years ago. Went negative. Yeah. And now it's a. They had so much oil, they had no place to put it. Right. They had no place to put it. People were paying to give the oil away. And now someone had to pay someone $20 a barrel to do it. Right. And now not that much later, you know, it's up over $100 a barrel. It's just interesting when you're in times like this right now, the feeling is, is that, you know, you're seeing all these bold, bold predictions about oil staying above 100 for years and years to come. And I remember in 2007, the hot thing that was going around, the reason oil was so expensive was this theory of peak oil. We found all the oil we're ever going to find, and we're not going to get any more of it out of the ground. And what happened was fracking came along. I mean, so to sit there and kind of have these analogies and people think that it's going to always continue this way, most likely it's going to do the opposite. Yeah, it's going to keep bouncing around. Never going to stay the same. Um, okay. Financial planning topic of the week comes from a blog post from one of our favorites, Morgan Housel titled after the fact. Okay. Um, so Morgan starts out by saying, let's say you exercise an hour a day, seven days a week, sweat, grunting, the real deal. Exercising does two things. It makes you hungry and it makes you proud. So let's say after every workout, you eat a large dinner with extra dessert. You know that's not ideal, but you just accomplish something hard so it feels justified. After a, <laughs> <laughs> after a year of this, you haven't lost any weight, which was your goal. You can't figure out why. You're exercising every day. In his book, The Body, Bill Bryson writes, One study in America found that people overestimate the number of calories they burned in a workout by a factor of four. They also consumed, on average, about twice as many calories as they had just burned off. The fact is you can quickly undo a lot of exercise by eating a lot of food, and most of us do. You can't measure the benefit of exercise just by tracking how much you work out. It's the gap between your workout and avoiding offsetting this benefits after the fact that makes all the difference and isn't building wealth the same. Here's a short story of what happened over the last 50 years. Median inflation-adjusted incomes doubled and the savings rate was nearly cut in half. Again, this chart here in this article will be put on um, the YouTube video, but it just shows that the typical American family is earning more than ever before, but for many, it probably doesn't feel like that, or at least as much as it should. Yep. Because all of the income gains, and then some, have been offset with higher spending. And this is a great line right here. You could say higher spending is the goal, but all new luxuries become necessities in due time. That's perfectly as expectations put. reset. I suspect part of the reason people don't feel better off is because financial progress is better measured by wealth, not income. And wealth is just the accumulation of income you haven't spent. So a lot of people are the financial equivalent of the exerciser who burns 500 calories then immediately offsets it with dessert and is frustrated by the lack of progress despite working so hard. I get why it happens. Spending more when your income rises, also known as life creep, uh, is tempting as eating more after you exercise. It feels earned and justified. People's lifestyle expectations are driven by their peers. So when everyone spends more, you feel entitled to do so. 
but all the wealth relies on the ability to receive an extra dollar and say, I could spend this and spending feels great, but I'm not going to. It's the same as turning down a big meal after working out and it's just as hard. All great things are hard. Well put. So I just thought it was great. You know, it just shows that, you know, as incomes have risen since, you know, 1967, that, that savings rate has severely, severely come down. You know, and like you got to think of the, the, the flip side of it. You know, the, the, the capitalistic side of me is like, you know, I, I, the U.S. is a consumption society. And I love the fact that that's happening because obviously that juices up corporate profits. Mm-hmm. Right. I hate me. That's the other side of it. Right. So I um, thought that was good for the, the financial planning topic of the week this week. That's a really good one. Um, anything else before we leave it off? Fed meeting week, March Matt. 16th. A lot of eyes on that. Yeah. Yep. So uh, baked in, I think that they're going to raise 0.25%. We'll see if that's the case. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, just I think people need to expect more volatility, especially in the going term. into quarter end here. Yeah. Into the end of the quarter. So um, big up days, big down days expected to continue for at least another couple weeks. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, we're going to leave it there. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in to episode number 140. And we'll be back with you next week. Take care, everyone. Thank you for listening to the Independent Advisors Podcast. If you're interested in hearing more, hit the subscribe button so you can be notified every time a new episode gets released. Feel free to share with friends, family, and follow us on Twitter at Jessup Wealth, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Mark and Matt will continue to share beneficial information on these social media sites. Also, check out the podcast tab on their website. That's www.jessupwealthmanagement.com. There you'll find links to every episode of the Independent Advisors. Have questions or topics you want to discuss on the show? Message us on Twitter, LinkedIn, or send an email with the words questions and topics in the subject line to inquiries at jessupwealthmanagement.com. We'll talk about it right here on the podcast. Certain sections of this commentary may contain forward-looking statements based on reasonable expectations, estimates, projections, and assumptions. Forward-looking statements are not guarantees of future performance and involve certain risks and uncertainties, which are difficult to predict. All indices are unmanaged and are not available for direct investment by the public. Past performance is not indicative of future results. This podcast is provided for general informational purposes only and does not constitute either tax, legal, or financial advice. Although we do go to great lengths to make sure our information is accurate and useful, we recommend you consult a tax preparer, professional tax advisor, financial advisor, or lawyer regarding your specific circumstances. Investing involves risk, including the loss of principal. No strategy can guarantee any objective or goal will be achieved. Advisory services offered through Commonwealth Financial Network, a registered investment advisor.